This week on the show, we look at D-Trace network probes in a Clara Systems article, also the next 50 years of shell programming and keeping that on, NetBSD on the Vortex 86DX CPU, system CPU time in top, your file system as a dungeon, diving into tool chains and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 409, The File System Dungeon, <laughs> recorded on the 16th of June, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode, initialized with some evil laughter. Why, you will learn in a second uh, or two. Uh, the headlines start this week with D-Trace Network Probes, an article by Clara Systems. Yeah, uh, this one is actually written by Tom. Uh, oh, great. Ah, so you should read it. <laughs> but yeah, he's not available today. But anyway, uh, D-Trace is an observability framework that enables dynamic tracings of programs and of the FreeBSD kernel itself. D-Trace has been ported to many different operating systems, including NetBSD, macOS, and Windows, and obviously FreeBSD. D-Trace was originally developed for Sun Solaris operating system, with D-Trace seeing its first release back in 2005. It landed in FreeBSD with version 7.1 in 2009, uh, and there's a BSD can talk about that if you'd like to learn how that happened. Uh, D-Trace offers an incredible view into the operating system and an excellent tool for debugging and performing, or performing analysis of complex software. So Tom goes on to talk a bit about it, but in particular, he talks about the two different kinds of tracing that D-Trace does. The first being FBT or function boundary traces, which is basically uh, an event happens every time you enter or exit a function. Uh, and these are nice and they're built in in FreeBSD. So you can just, you know, look at um, every time a function is called, you can see what the incoming uh, parameters were. And every time it returns, you can see what the return value was. Can be quite useful. Um, but there are also statically defined tracing or SDT. And sometimes it makes more sense to be able to cause an event in the middle of a function. And uh, so in the TCP, uh, IP, and UDP parts of the network stack, there are a bunch of these statically defined probes. What's really nice about both the FPT and SDT probes in D-Trace is they basically don't do anything if you're not using them. So basically, uh, D-Trace can annotate uh, as part of compiling FreeBSD, the compact type framework annotates where every function starts and stops or where these probe points are. And then D-Trace can dynamically modify the running code to say, all right, when you hit this probe point, insert this extra bit of code to, you know, raise this event saying, hey, somebody just called this function called foo, or uh, basically enable the static probe. So normally the static probe just, the code just jumps over it uh, because it's flagged off. But by using the D-Trace command, you can flag it on at runtime and start getting those. And as soon as you stop, running D-Trace, it goes back to not having any impact on your performance. Uh, so Tom's article talks a bit about the uh, various probes that you can use here. So the, in the network, there are TCP probes for things like every time a connection is accepted or refused um, or requested, every block that is sent or received, or um, you know, every time a UDP packet is sent or received. And he talks about what the um, different arguments you get to the probe are and how you can use those to find different information. For example, he created this dtrace one-liner here that looks at the IP receive probe and counts based on argument number two, uh, or I guess argument two, which is uh, the third argument, um, looking at the source address. And then, so after you run this probe for a little bit, and when you hit control C, it will output a little histogram telling you you know, this IP address sent you uh, 367 packets, and this IP address sent you 259, and this one sent you only one. And so you can break down what's happening on your system. Uh, or he had another one here where he quantizes the packet length. And so every time we send a packet, it gets added to this and it figures out, you know, uh, in this example from one IP address, uh, 25 of the uh, what's that? Oh, 50 packets 
were between 32 and 63 bytes long, and 15 of them were between 64 and 127 bytes long, and then some were between 512 and 1023, or 1023 and, and 2047. And so you can break down the packets you're sending based on how big they are and get an idea of, am I sending a lot of little packets or a lot of big packets and so on. And it walks through how to do it all. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah, that's very useful in debugging or developing uh, code or finding out, hey, where is that bug happening? Is it happening only on a lot of packets or big packets? And so that's a variable or a very useful tool without writing these printf statements into your, into your code all the time. So yeah, great article here, and uh, there's a lot of information in there that you can uh, write, try out right away because the all the dtrace commands are provided. Okay, then we have uh, Unix shell programming the next 50 years, and you think, oh, is that really that long? And yeah, surely it has. Well, no, in this particular case, they're talking about how to make shell programming last another 50 yeah, years. Like yeah, like the future. Uh, so this is an ACM paper uh, by Michael Greenberg, Konstantin Konstantinos Kalas and Nikos Vasilakis. And so it starts uh, with the abstract. Maybe that's a good start into the uh, topic. The Unix shell is a powerful, ubiquitous, and reviled tool for managing computer systems. The shell has been largely ignored by academia and industry. While many replacement shells have been proposed, the Unix shell persists. True send uh, to recent threads of formal and practical research on the shell enable new approaches. Uh, we can help manage the shell's essential shortcomings, dynamism, power, and abstruseness, yeah, and address the inessential ones. Improving the shell holds much promise for development, ops, and data processing. Yeah, so they talk a little bit about the pros and cons of the existing shell. Uh, or, you know, the, first they talk about the complexity of the shell, figuring that if, if you're even thinking constraining just to the POSIX specification of the the shell, uh, you know, then you get this kind of hard to read document that's 119 pages of impenetrable uh, prose. And then by reference includes another 160 pages about the utilities. And that's just the POSIX bits. Most of those utilities have additional features that aren't part of POSIX that are extensions and so on. But looking at the good, uh, you know, they have the classic example of, you know, having to cut these columns out and then grep out these lines and then sort it and then return the head or whatever. So they say one of the best things about shell is its universal composition. The shell is a natural composer of programs. More than any other language, the shell makes it easy to combine a variety of existing tools written themselves in who knows what languages and uh, composing the existing tools uh, and just pipelining them together makes things, uh, you know, increases your productivity, makes it all very reliable and simple and so on. Uh, you know, the most radical possible solution for constructing software is not to construct it at all, right? Because you can just pipe together a bunch of existing Unix tools. And you don't need to build something new. The second advantage is stream processing. The Unix shell uh, embeds a small domain-specific language for expressing pipeline stream comp uh, computations. Basically, pipe the output of this into that and then into another thing. And then you can, you know, you get some higher order primitives like XARGs and so on. But in general, it's pretty straightforward. Other good thing is it's Unix native. The feature and abstractions of the shell are well suited to the Unix file system and the file-based abstraction. Unix can be viewed as a naming service, mapping strings to longer strings, be it data files or programs and so on. And then uh, advantage number four is that it's interact. Shell is not just a programming language, but it's a lived-in environment. By having the entire environment be the program context, the shell lowers the barrier between interactive and non-interactive use. Interactivity is further facilitated by commands that are short and which often take single letter flags with default options informed by real practical use. But there are some downsides. Uh, downside number one, it's too arbitrary. The shell's virtue of limitless composition also is a vice. The shell can compose arbitrary commands written by arbitrary languages and any simple shell command can translate to an exec VE of some arbitrary execu uh, executable with arbitrary unknown behaviors. Calls to exec VE uh, make unified analysis very challenging as different source programs won't share semantics and binary analysis, uh, the lowest common denominator, cannot discover high level invariance and so on. Problem number two is it's too dynamic. Shells 
uh, shell scripts are very succinct, partly because of the existence of a global state that can be modified and accessed at runtime. Unfortunately, this means that the behavior of the shell cannot be known statically because it really depends on the environment, even whether it's simple things of the environment like what directory you start from or things like environment variables and so on, or what's in your .profile or .shrc and so on. And it's definitely one of the problems with shell scripts is because it's meant to be this lived in environment, when you go to programming it, it can end up depending too much on your environment or even just, I think it's uh, mm. ZSH sets a couple of variables that like to to muck with the FreeBSD source build. Uh, and so like it sets your CPU type and makes it hard to try to compile for ARM on x86 and so on. Uh, another problem is it's too obscure. The semantics of the shell and common commands are documented in, you know, 300 pages of standard ease. To be able to reason about a script's behavior, <laughs> one needs to understand the exact behavior of its component operators and the role of the environment and the intrinsic state that the, of the shell interpreter. Furthermore, there's no single shell environment. Multiple shells with subtle, different, subtly different behavior are out there, right? Whether you're writing in SH or Bash or ASH or KSH or ZSH and so on, it all goes pear-shaped really quickly. Then they get into the ugly things like how error-prone shell scripts are and how the performance doesn't scale. Definitely in the shell script, you can see a big performance difference if you can use some of the uh, built-in variable substitution stuff or built-in commands rather than having to fork out to use grep to chop the last two letters off a string or something, then mm. yeah, you can definitely have uh, scaling issues there. Ugly number three is redundant uh, recomputation. Uh, recomp computation. Uh, small changes to the input of a script is basically requires complete re-execution leading to many hours of wasted redundant computations. This is common in data processing and pre-processing workloads, as well as in build configuration setup scripts. Domain-specific solutions such as build systems like Make address this issue for their use cases. Like Make knows, oh, I only need to recompile the files that have changed the way the, the C file is newer than the, the output file. But you know, in general, a shell script is going to start at the top every time, uh, and that can be a downside. And then uh, number four is no support for contemporary deployments. Uh, the shell's core abstraction was designed to facilitate orchestration, management, and processing on a single machine. However, the overabundance of non-solutions like PSSH, GNU Parallel, and web interfaces for these classes of re uh, computation in today's distributed environment indicates an impedance mismatch between what the shell provides and the needs in those environments. Yep. And so they have a section about enablers. So they talk about libdash and smoosh. So this is uh, smooch uh, is this recent effort to formalize the semantics of the POSIX shell, addressing the obscurities and subtleties of those prone standards, and has two parts, libdash, which is a linkable parsing library that supports both parsing POSIX shell scripts to a abstract syntax trees, and unparsing these trees back to scripts. And the second is a POSIX formalization mechanized in LAM, an ML-like language machine learning-like that can be compiled to Coq, C -O -Q, for mechanized reasoning and proofs of OCaml for execution. And so they say that Pash and Smooth and Posh, oh, here come the, the attributes here. Uh, Pash and Posh both proposed annotation languages as a high-level specification interface for dealing with the challenges of unknown command behavior. So that addresses the bad uh, part number one that we read above. And so they in this paper, they try to address each of those things they identified as bad or as ugly. Um, with a better solution. And so this is what the, the, the core part of their paper is about. And then they talk a bit about the future, uh, like distributing, building a distributed Unix equivalent in which Unix abstractions transcend single computer boundaries uh, has been a goal since the 1970s. Most attempts to implement fully fledged uh, distributed operating systems, uh, but enablers like E1 through E3 uh, hint at the option of a language system hybrid. A thin but sophisticated rewriting-based uh, shim like Jash, uh, which um, simplified the design of these systems and would have armed them with the semantic foundation necessary for tracking unavoidable distribution trade-offs. And then they look at incremental computation, so that you know you don't have to start over all the time. Support for heuristics, uh, user support, so the shell's user interface shows its age. The field of human-computer interface seems to neglect the terminal as a relic, but active research on notebooks holds promise, and innovations in this domain uh, could 
port over. Uh, many projects focus on better interactive shells at some cost to programmability. Innovative, uh, innovation in terminal emulations like FIG and iTerm2 improve user experience as well. The historical divide between terminal and shell may no longer be appropriate. For example, iTerm2 uses a custom protocol for escape codes to munge all that PS1 and detect prompts and so on. More modern support uh, like languages and uh, language servers and structured protocols could make this much better. And then finally, formal support. Uh, Smoosh provides formal support for building uh, support systems for the shell uh, and, and you know rich command annotation feedback into more robust uh, symbolic execution and so on. And you can build a just-in-time compiler and so on. And then they have a, a short chapter about trying to rehabilitate the shell. Yeah, where they call for people, for the research community especially, to you know advance the shell in future uh, you know, papers or uh, work, building on recent advantages or advances. The shell is a promising area of research neglected for so long. Improving the shell will improve the experience for users of many stripes, development, ops, data processing, and novices. The shell warrants a fresh look from the research community. And they have a very large references section, which I think is also good for people who um, want to get more deeply into parts of this and also general, you know, Unix history and how the shell was developed. Oh, very nice paper. So next up, we have the news roundup for you with NetBSD on the Vortex X86DX CPU. And so you think, hey, have I ever heard about this? So we'll see. Um, uh, Frederick Campus writes, I'm not exactly sure how I first heard about the Vortex 86 CPUs. And there's a link to the manufacturer site, vortex86.com. I think it was either when seeing the demonstration video of Colibri, Colibri OS, Colibri? Colibri OS, project site showcasing the system running a DMP e-box machine or when skimming NetBSD's idencpu.c code. Or did the discovery of the machine prompted me to check if the CPU would be correctly probed by the NetBSD kernel? For those interested, Wikipedia has an article retracing the history of the Vortex 86 from its birth at rise to our days. Several DMP e-box e machines are available for sale at various specialized vendors, but new devices cost several hundreds of dollars, which is prohibitive uh, for such low-spec systems. However, I was recently able to acquire a boxed older model on a local auction site for about $25, the eBox 3300A-H with one gigahertz CPU and 256 megs of RAM, no less. So as I already mentioned, those machines are quite slow, but they still do have a few things going for them. First, they are totally fanless and the metal case finish is quite nice. Second, there are very low power x86 embedded devices and still being produced. I uh, use the power meter to do measurements and an idle system consumes 5.3 watts. Ah, oh, not too much. Power consumption peaked at 6.4 watts when running the OpenSSL speed benchmark. There's a space for two and a half uh, inch hard drive in Exclosure, but I don't have any IDE drives anymore, so I opted to use old compact flashcards I had laying around. As a side note, it's actually exquisite to use those cards like glorified floppies. <laughs> yeah. For this post, I used the one gigabyte compact flash card and selected the minimum installation of sysinst. And so there's a screenshot of uh, the installed systems. Takes roughly 212 megabytes of installation size. On a freshly booted system, they provide uh, or tell us that 15 processes are running and 26 megs of RAM I used. Okay, that's also not too much, good. Here's the result of running catproc CPU info. So that's a bit of uh, background information about the CPU, megahertz and such. The OpenSSL speed benchmark results are also available in a separate uh, link. And they provide the full D message of what kind of devices are detected and supported. Yeah. Cool, yet another machine that can say it runs NetBSD, of course. Yeah, the Wikipedia page mentions that it apparently it's supported on FreeBSD as well, although the link is behind a a login wall so you couldn't actually go and read it um, but apparently the spec sheet from the company that makes them says that freebsd works on it uh again you know it's an x86 cpu so probably it's just a matter of what network card is built into that soc and so on yeah great so next up we have an article from whycrash.io talking about system cpu time what does sys mean in top cpu consumption in unix uh, operating systems 
are identified using eight different metrics, the user CPU time, the system CPU time, the nice CPU time, the idle CPU time, on Linux, the waiting CPU time, and then hardware interrupt CPU time, and the software interrupt CPU time, and stolen CPU time. And so in this article, they're going to focus on what system CPU time means. In order to understand system CPU time, one should understand what user CPU time is, since they go hand in hand. User CPU time is the amount of time the processor spends running your application code, so the actual program you're trying to run. System CPU time is the amount of time the processor spends running the operating system's functions connected to your application. So for example, when your application tries to write to the network, um, it calls write, and that goes into the kernel and does some work like copying the data from your program to the network, um, and then returns to your application, which then goes on running. So the CPU will kind of flip back and forth between the user code and the system code. So let's say your application is manipulating the elements of an array, then that will be all user CPU time. But let's say your application is making network calls to an external application. Uh, to make the network calls, it has to read or write data into the socket, and that ends up as CPU time or system time. So how to find what your current system CPU time is, uh, you can use a web-based root cause analysis tool like Ycrash, uh, or you can just run top. Uh, and then top, they have a little screenshot here of Linux, and you can see that they have 8% user time, 13.5% system time, zero nice, zero idle, 77% wait, uh, no interrupts, and a little bit of stolen time, which uh, mostly I think happens in VMs. <clears throat> so how to simulate high system CPU load? Uh, to simulate this, uh, they're going to use Buggy App. Buggy App is an open source Java project which can simul simulate various sorts of performance problems. When you launch Buggy App uh, with the following arguments, it will cause high uh, CPU system load. So in this case, they run buggy app with problem IO, and you can see that it is doing uh, quite a bit of system work and a lot of wait work with being it's waiting for IO to happen. So they look into the source code of buggy app and see that basically what it does is build this long string and then uh, write it out to a file and then read it back. So it launches five IO threads if the IO demo class, you can notice that the IO thread is going to be basically an infinite while loop. Uh, in that loop, it's writing the contents of a file and reading the same content back in the file. It is also doing these two steps repeatedly again and again. Uh, and since writing contents and reading contents from the disk is a heavy IO intensive operation, the waiting CPU time is end up taking most of it, but system takes that 13%. So how do you resolve high CPU time? First is, uh, a short-term tactical solution is to restart the high CPU consuming process. Only helps if it was somehow not doing what it was supposed to be doing. Uh, number two, it could be a bug in the application. Applications may try to access a resource like a file or a network connection that doesn't exist repeatedly again and again instead of assuming an error, or the application could be doing a lot of work of one kind or another. Uh, in that circumstance, system CPU time can spike up and you can use tools like Ycrash to identify the root cause of the problem. I forget what the tool is called on Linux, but on FreeBSD, you can use Truss with, I think, the dash S switch, uh, which can attach to a process for a little while. And then when you stop it, it will print out how many system calls of each type uh, have been run. And you can see, oh, that application ran this call like 100,000 times. Was it supposed to be doing that? Uh, and then I can, or, you know, why is that particular call so expensive or whatever? And then finally, you can make sure you're running the latest version of your OS, which might have been optimized to spend less CPU time on whatever that particular call is. Yeah, it's always good to trace that down uh, because it makes uh, other applications still getting a little bit of a uh, piece of the pie of the I.O. system without you hogging everything. Cool. Next up, we have our namesake for this episode, diving. No, wait, RPG CLI, your file system as a dungeon. Have you ever died? by running ls or what no this is exactly what it is uh, there's a freebsd port for it already uh it's rpg-cli and is a bare bones jrpg inspired terminal game written in rust it can work as an alternative suit to cd where you randomly encounter enemies as you change directories so you, you started with RPG, there's a little screenshot explaining it, and you have a little hero, which is at home, has a hit points of 25 maximum, and no, 30 experience, 30 points, experience points, a maximum at the moment. 
Yeah. Uh, attacks and defense uh, and speed, I guess. And a little bit of equipment or nothing. No, zero Goid coins. Okay. So let's move into a different directory. And oh, here we go. Seems like there is something in there that caused you to lose seven hit points. Because there's a spider in there. Yep. And so the spider attacks and you attack and the spider takes damage and the hero takes damage. And before you know it, you either are dead or the spider yep. in this case uh, is you dead. You killed the spider and you gained 11 and experience and 103 gold. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So up to the next directory. So this is empty. Nothing happens. Next one as well. So you, instead of CD, you use RPG and we can just go absolute or relative directories. And next one encounters a hero. Oh, you get seven hit points. Healed up. What happened there? Ah, <laughs> oh, cool. So that's cool. Uh, and now, oh, here's a, a slime thing happening, and that's bad because it's attacking. And oh, it dodged even. Oh, no, the hero dodged. Okay. So this is <laughs> entertaining. Yeah. 10 hit points. Oh, 12 hit points. Critical by the hero. Excellent. But in the end, oh, hero died. There's a little skull icon. <laughs> Excellent. And so it uh, ends and you are back in your file system. So that's a nice way of uh, exploring your file system. Features, character stats and leveling system, automatic turn-based combat, item and equipment support, 15 and more enemy classes, permadeath with item recovering. Oh, that's great. Run and bribe to escape battles. Yeah, I really need to be in this directory now. <laughs> Cool. Instructions are on the GitHub page or just run package install rpg-cli on free. That does look pretty fun. <laughs> oh, you can buy potions. Oh, excellent. Um, totally distracted now. <laughs> uh, so next we have another article uh, from Frederick Kambas uh, about diving into tool chains. It says, I've been wanting to learn more about compilers and tool chains in general for a while now. In June of 2016, I asked about uh, recommended reading on lectures and parsers on Twitter. However, I have to confess that I didn't go forward with reading the Dragon book. Instead, I got involved as a developer in OpenBSD and NetBSD and witnessed the evolution of those tool chains within those systems, uh, playing a big role in maintaining my interest and fascination with that topic. In retrospect, I've now become apparent that I work, uh, the work I did on porting and packaging software for these systems really helped to put in perspective how the different parts of the tool chain interact together and produce binaries. Approximately one year ago, I again asked on Twitter whether I knew anyone having worked on compilers and tool chains professionally to get real world advice on how to gain experience in that field. I got several interesting answers and started to collect and read some resources. Some of the links I collected ended up on toolchains.net, a collection of toolchain resources, which I put online back in February. But the answer that resonated the most to me came from Howard's advice to learn by doing. Because I seem to be the kind of person who uh, needs some concrete results in order to keep motivated, that's exactly what I decided to do. I started by doing some cleanups of the bin utils package in NetBSD's package source, which resulted in a series of commits, and I have the links here. However, I got into the or got the opportunity to update our package and apply security fixes as well. So they updated uh, stuff there as well, uh, and eventually uh, end up with the, as the maintainer of bin utils on package source. Building it repeatedly with different compilers exposed different warnings. And I've also run builds through Clang's static analyzer. All of this resulted in the opportunity to contribute back to upstream bin utils itself, including uh, fixing a double free in Obchopsy's memory freeing code, adding values to the .note.netbsd.ident note for packs, uh, removing the now unneeded ifdef check for uh, netbsd packs, and removing some unneeded tests for uh, definitions in the netbsd core values. More recently, I also wrote a couple of blog posts on the topic, including the state of toolchains in NetBSD, uh, speed building LLVM slash Clang in five minutes, speed building LLVM and Clang in two minutes on ARM. Both of those sound quite interesting because uh, I think most people's biggest complaint about LLVM is Clang is that they take a long time to compile. Uh, there's also a state of toolchains on OpenBSD. And finally, playing with DJGPP and GCC10 on DOS. Uh, and the journey continues. I'm following a different path from traditional compiler courses, starting with lectures and parsers, and doing the opposite curriculum somehow, starting with the binaries. Uh, I will be focusing on the final stages of the pipeline for now, so that's compiling the assembly into machine code and producing binaries. My next step is to read the full ELF specification, followed by the linkers and loaders book, and then refresh my assembly skills. 
my favorite course at university was the computer architecture one, and uh, especially its MIPS assembly part, as I'm starting to revisit the subject, but with ARM64 assembly this time. Okay, I guess we'll see more <gasps> on the blog uh, in the future about this. So this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and start using Tarsnap. All you have to do is click the little green start using Tarsnap button, which is pretty simple. It is uh, install Tarsnap on your machine. Uh, go to the Tarsnap registration page and give us your email address uh, and affirm whether or not you live in Canada and are subject to sales tax. And then put some money in your account and now you're good to go. But remember, do not lose your Tarsnap key. You will never be able to access the data ever again if you do. That's a feature. Yeah, not even the Tarsnap folks can help. Uh, so some suggested ways to keep it safe is keep a copy on another system, put it on a USB stick, give it to a trusted friend, print it out. There's actually a special mode in Tarsnap to make a printable text where the last character is a checksum. So as you're re-entering it, it will uh, tell you which line you made the typo on so that you uh, don't have to just try to retype the entire thing all in uh, or store it in a bank vault. But pick at least one of these and make sure you do it because tar snap can't help you if you lose your key. Yeah. That's the whole point. Remember when we said it's for paranoid? It is, yeah. But also it's a solid solution for backups. Yeah. And uh, because you pay only for the data you store and the data you transfer, it means that you, know, you control how much you spend. And because it's prepaid, you put money in your account and then use it up until you run out and you'll get an email like Benedict did the other week uh, saying, hey, your account balance is running low. Put more money in if you want to keep doing backups. It means that you can never get a surprise bill because you can't spend more money than you've already put into Tarsnap. So unlike a lot of clouds that are all about, yes, give us all your <laughs> data so we can charge you more money to store it. Um, you will never get a surprise bill from Tarsnap. You can only spend the money you've already given them. Okay, uh, let's head into feedback and questions for this week. We have uh, Alfred sending us in a question and wanting our advice. So he writes, Dear Alan and Benedict, why do I have to zpool import-a my ZFS pool each time I boot my system? When my galley encrypted disk mirror was installed on release 12.2, they did not need zpool import. After an upgrade to release 13 and zpool upgrade, the mirror needs to be imported after each restart. By the way, the base system is installed on a UFS disk. Um, it sounds like it might be your cache file. So when you upgrade it, make sure you actually got the new rc.d script. So there's now a etc rc.d zpool script that basically runs zpool import-a boot for you. And the other thing to watch out for is the cache file. The location of the cache file moved from boot slash zfs slash zpool.cache to etc zfs zpool.cache. The rc.d script looks in both places, I think, anyway. But um, so yeah, first thing, make sure you have the zpool script. If you don't, it means you did your upgrade slightly in an odd way and somehow missed it. Uh, and if you do have it, you should see that it checks both cache file locations, but maybe not, I don't know. And so you can do zpool set cache file equals slash etc slash zfs slash zpool.cache and then the pool name. And that will make sure that the cache file is updated for that pool um, and you do that for each pool if you have multiple and then that will make sure that the rc.d script picks that up uh, and i guess also make sure you have zfs underscore enable equals yes in your rc.conf otherwise uh, the import won't happen or the mounting won't happen yeah the script will look for that and will then happily import your pool yeah i like um i think more people might have encountered this issue if they didn't happen to boot from zfs um, basically, when you're booting from ZFS and you have only one pool, you don't really encounter this problem because the kernel's already imported your pool before that uh, zpool script would run. But it should have just worked for you, but it's possible you're somehow missing that uh, script because you didn't run etz update or whatever. Could be, yeah. It's it's not totally difficult. Anyway, to so yeah. Make sure you have the script and then uh, failing that, try updating the cache file property on the pool to point to the new location. Yeah, and then you're set and you can boot right into your system. Okay, next is Sai with a portable patch utility. That reads, hi guys, thanks for a consistently interesting and informative podcast. Oh wow, that's very specific feedback, thank you. In recent episodes, you have indicated the feedback has been a little thin. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, but it's getting better. Okay, 
thanks to you and others. Well, I have a rather offbeat question, but since things are slow, what the heck, I'll throw it in the queue. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. I maintain a large cross-platform Windows OS X Linux BSD C C++ program built using CMake. One of the ways we keep things portable and self-contained is to optionally bundle third-party dependencies. To keep maintenance simple, we prefer to keep the upstream sources vanilla and apply patches when needed. Unfortunately, the fly in the ointment in this regard is Windows, which, to the best of my knowledge, has to build in native equivalent to patch or has no built-in native, yeah. Okay, so of course I tried my standard go-to in this situation. I grabbed one of the BSD code bases with patch utility or capability, OpenBSD's patch capability in this case, and tried to use the LibreSSL portability shims to get it to build with Visual Studio so we can guarantee patches availability ourselves in at need. Uh, I was eventually able to get it to build, but when I tried hooking up the tests on Windows, many of them failed. Before going any deeper into the rabbit hole, I thought I would seek an expert answer of the following two questions. First, do you know if someone already ported one of the BSD patch tools to Windows? Um, I don't know. In the, the course of... Not uh, at the top of my head. So in the course of... Uh, I do know that there there is a project to port the Linux GNU one. Uh, there's a, a project on SourceForge called GNU Win32 which is almost all the basic command line tools from like GNU core utils ported to Windows. And I've used that before to get diff, grep, sort, and that type of thing uh, on a Windows yeah, machine. Yeah, I was uh, thinking that with the um, Windows shell moving more and more, becoming to a Unix shell, I'm fairly sure that patch will be... Right, although they, uh, for making their software for Windows, they can assume that the, the user is going to have that kind of developer yeah. stuff on their machine. Uh, but yeah, so you could, um, I think you want something, there's like uh, Ming W32 yeah. or whatever that allows you to compile stuff. Um, but yeah, it sounds like your Visual Studio thing possibly is mostly working. It might just be a difference of line endings or something special. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, that's part of uh, the second question. If not, is there a standard convention for how to handle uh, line feeds and uh, enter line feeds? Yeah, uh, file conventions with patch tools. Yeah, he says, since BSD code often gets used in a lot of strange places, maybe there's an answer. Um, yeah, so it depends how you do it. You know, I've in the past, I've been mostly saved from this problem because Subversion uh, allows you to check it out and then apply in the local copy the OS's normal line ending. Um, so meaning, like, if you checked out the FreeBSD source code on Windows, all the files ended up with the CRLF ending instead of just the LF ending uh, based on Subversion did that as it wrote out the files. Probably the easiest thing, uh, again, comes back to bundling a second utility, uh, but having all of the source files, because they're Unix or whatever, just have the LF line ending since that's going to cover, you know, three out of the four targets of your, your thing here, Linux, uh, OS X, or well, Mac OS, uh, since it's actually version 11 now. Uh, so yeah, macOS, Linux, and BSD all use LF. Uh, so just having all the files in LF and having your OpenBSD patch utility use LF solves your problem mostly, probably. Uh, but you could bundle, say, the um, DOS to Unix command to convert files that happen to have a Windows line ending, forcing them to a Unix line ending before running them through the patch utility or mm. something. Uh, I was just looking at um, package source. They don't support Windows natively, but SigWin is supported. So maybe that's a way. Yeah, I think I think the GNU Win32 thing I looked at was, no, that was native Windows. But yeah, SigWin is another option of of a way to get, uh, you know, diff patch and DOS to Unix or whatever for yeah. Windows as, as native Windows binaries. Yeah, maybe that will get you uh, further ahead. Yeah, it looks like an interesting uh, project. And I'm fairly sure that someone has encountered this before because a lot of people want to port their software to Windows. Yeah, so like uh, I've had to fall back to using the, the GNU versions of some tools to use them on Windows. Although I've also done the other way. I ported FreeBSD's LockF to Linux uh, because I couldn't live without it <laughs> uh, for you know making sure that my cron tabs don't run concurrently oh, yeah. and so on. Uh, I just you know really like the LockF semantics and the way it works and being able to tell my automation just do it this way whether it's windows or whether it's freebsd or linux was really handy mm. uh so i'm guessing someone has built 
one of the BSD license patch tools for Windows, or it should be able to be done. Um, it'd be interesting to know what the, the test failures you're running into are. Part of it might be the tests making assumptions about the environment. Yeah, so a couple of if devs or um, similar would, would help. If someone else out there knows this or has done this before, send it to us and we'll link to it uh, from the show notes. It, this is feedback at bsdnow.tv. But yeah, uh, you know, in a real pinch, you can just grab the ones from the GNU Win32 project. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that compiling the FreeBSD or OpenBSD patch utility and shipping that instead would be better. Uh, it's just a matter of how much time you want to spend on it. Mm. Yeah, and focus on your own software more than porting uh, these basic utilities. Okay, thanks for that question and the nice feedback. And uh, next is Dennis with a state of ZFS ecosystem question. Okay, um, that goes, hi, Alan, Benedict, and Tom. As always, thanks for the show. Hey, thank you. I'm somewhat confused about the state of ZFS development. As far as I know, prior to FreeBSD 13, FreeBSD used the fork of Ilomos version of ZFS, which in turn started as a fork of Sun implementation. And that fork was or is called OpenZFS. And the website is openzfs.org. Now, Linux has or had its own fork called ZFS on Linux, or ZOL. The website is zfsonlinux.org. Have these two forks been merged into what is called OpenZFS 2.0 now? If not, what about the developers of the Ilumus version? Have they joined the effort or are they continue working on their own version and we now have diverging code base? What is the official website for OpenZFS 2.0? Maybe you could give me a rough estimate. Okay, so we start at the beginning uh, before we read the rest of the question. So um, yes, there was there's a project called OpenZFS and the uh, goal of that project, which was started by Matt Ahrens, who is one of the original authors of ZFS, um, was to try to make something that worked on all operating systems or basically to keep all the different versions of zfs compatible with each other was the main goal uh but the kind of bigger goal was some way to have one repo where all the zfs code lived and then each operating system be that a lumos freebsd linux or whatever would then uh pull that down add their glue in somehow uh, and then distribute that as their version of zfs but making the version of ZFS that didn't include any operating system specific code, meaning that uh, a version of ZFS that didn't work on anybody's operating system, which basically worked in user space for running the tests and that was it, turned out not to really go anywhere um, because nobody was going to spend all the man hours to make something work, but that didn't actually run on their operating system because it was basically going to be no operating system. Um, so for a long time, OpenZFS was a copy of the Illumos uh, repo where you could open pull requests and someone uh, from Matt's team would then port that over to Illumos for you and deal with the more complicated rules Illumos has about getting something merged. But that wasn't scaling very well. And at the same time, uh, ZFS on Linux, which was also a fork of the Illumos code, um, was seeing more development happen there. And so more changes were going into the ZFS on Linux branch than were going into the Illumos branch and changes in Illumos happened very slowly. And FreeBSD had been pulling in its copy from the open ZFS repo, which was this copy of Illumos. Uh, but it meant that, um, you know, sometimes fixes would go into ZFS on Linux uh, without somebody realizing that, oh, that fix actually applies to FreeBSD and Illumos too. And they forgot to open a bug report on the other projects about it or something. And uh, it was either duplicated effort or bugs not getting fixed was sometimes the problem. But of course, ZFS on Linux was also still pulling in new features from Illumos the whole time. It wasn't completely separate development or anything. So uh, a couple of years ago, it was decided since uh, the, most of the new code being written on ZFS was happening on Linux, uh, that it would make more sense to shift the definition of open ZFS to that code base. But uh, in order to make that make sense, we actually managed to accomplish somewhat of Matt's original goal. The new OpenZFS 2.0 repo is one common repo that contains all the ZFS code, basically all the features that are in Illumos ZFS, plus all the ones from Linux ZFS. And then it has a separate uh, OS directory where any Linux-specific code lives in a Linux directory and all the FreeBSD-specific code lives in a FreeBSD directory. 
Uh, so instead of just having you know one uh, arc.c, which had uh, was all written for Alumos only, and then when we pulled it over to FreeBSD, there was a compat library uh, that basically translated the Solaris uh, kernel commands into FreeBSD ones. Uh, but you often end up like inline in the code, it would just say, if def Alumos, do it this way. Otherwise, we're on FreeBSD, we do it this way. And it was up to the developers to spot, oh, a change happened to the Alumos code, I need to make the same change to the FreeBSD code. Uh, the way it works now instead is there's arc.c that contains all the ZFS-specific code. And then if there's OS-specific code in another directory under FreeBSD or Linux or whatever, there'll be an arc underscore OS.c file that contains any uh, OS-specific code. So what we have now is one repo that contains all the common code, but can be compiled on both FreeBSD and Linux. And it means also we've set it up so that in order for a new change to get merged into OpenZFS, it has to pass the ZFS tests on both Linux and FreeBSD. So this makes sure that the new commits don't break one of the operating systems. And uh, the, the team that does ZFS on macOS is uh, a decent way through adding their support into the repo as well. So then this one common repo will have the code for ZFS on Mac, FreeBSD, and Linux. Or, yeah. And there's some hope maybe the Illumos people will have time to do it, but it's a lot of work. Because the ZFS on Linux repo happened over a very long time and kept pulling in the Illumos stuff out of order, trying to transition FreeBSD from the Illumos base to the OpenZFS repo was hard because most of the changes from Illumos had already been merged in FreeBSD, but in a different order. Uh, and so trying to sort it was difficult. So it became easier to do the other way to basically take what was in the ZFS on Linux repo and reapply the Solaris porting layer that FreeBSD already had from the Illumos version, uh, which basically translates all the Illumos stuff into FreeBSD stuff. Uh, because ZFS on Linux has the same thing, they call it the SPL, the Solaris porting layer, uh, that translates all these Solaris calls into Linux. So in most of the ZFS code, all the calls to the kernel are still Illumos calls, and then it goes through a shim that either converts that to FreeBSD or Linux calls. Uh, so importantly, while the project is called ZFS on Linux, it really does not have much to do with Linux. It's a bunch of ZFS developers uh, who happen to run ZFS on top of Linux but you know, they can't get changes they need into the Linux kernel. So they basically have to do everything in ZFS anyway. So they're not bringing any Linuxy things into, into FreeBSD. So the very important thing to remember is that OpenZFS 2.0 is ZFS on FreeBSD and Linux. It is not uh, bringing any, you know, it doesn't use the Linux compatibility layer in FreeBSD. It doesn't use the Linux KPI stuff that we use to port drivers in graphic for graphics and, and network cards and so on from Linux. It's all native FreeBSD code uh, because most of ZFS is still actually written to the Solaris uh, APIs. And then those gets translated to the OS specific APIs. So there's nothing, there's no downside to it, I would say in the end. So, yeah, the official website is still the same. It's just the repo, we switched from the repo that only got a couple of commits a year to the repo that gets a couple <laughs> of commits a day. Yeah, so it's really merging instead of diverging. Yes, and yes, the important thing is we actually got FreeBSD uh, and the Linux versions of ZFS to be identical instead of uh, each of them missing out on a bunch of stuff. The, I haven't asked for the last part of the yeah, question. So, too, so that is, maybe you could give me a rough estimate how much percentage-wise the FreeBSD 13 version inherits from Illumos version and what is ZOL contribution? Uh, that I don't have an exact number, but the important thing to remember there is that basically everything that was ever in Illumos was merged into ZOL as well. So there's there's no stuff that was in the Illumos version that's not in the Linux version. Uh, so almost ZFS 2.0, how much is Illumos versus how much is ZOL? It's really hard to say. Part of it is because the paths have changed around. We reorganized everything to put uh, make OS subdirectories and so on. Uh, it's not that easy to diff the files. Like, Git's rename detection can mostly deal with it, but you know, not that much. I do know that I would say I think Matt's given a metric that over the last fifteen years, the the main bulk of OpenZFS being a, a project, that more than fifty percent of the code is new and not the original code from Sun you know, when, at the time when Oracle killed it. 
so that most of the code that's that is OpenZFS, uh, there's not that much left that's the original code that is in Oracle ZFS. But I don't know how much of it is ZOL versus Lumos, uh, because basically everything that's in Lumos is in OpenZFS. And basically everything that was in FreeBSD's port of Lumos ZFS to FreeBSD is in the upstream OpenZFS because we kept that compat layer because it works and you know we're not going to rewrite it for no reason so i would say the important thing is there's no reason for concern uh and you know the goal was always for the different versions to be as close to the same as possible uh so now uh the Illumos version tries to pull things in from the zfs and Linux version but they are uh getting further and further behind which is the main reason why freebsd switched because it was you know already the Illumos one moved kind of slow but you know, it took a very long time for Illumos to get support for encryption, which I think it, it does have now. Uh, but for example, uh, when RAID Z expansion gets merged into OpenZFS 2.0, possibly in the next couple of weeks, um, that'll be available via the KMOD port on FreeBSD within a couple of weeks. Uh, and then it'll be in the next major releases of FreeBSD. It might take years before that's available on Illumos. Partly because uh, the Illumos use case probably doesn't benefit from RAID Z expansion much, so they're not going to prioritize it. You know, there's a desire for Illumos to be included in OpenZFS. Uh, it's mostly a matter of it's a lot of work and somebody would have to sit there and do it. Mm, yep. So I think there's a lot of good things happening down the line with the combined efforts in one repo and one code base um, that helps everyone. Cool. So thank you for your questions this week. Uh, I think we reached the episode and yep, I have nothing more on the list here. So uh, thank you for listening as always. And we'll be back with another episode. You guessed it next week.